Good morning. If we could uh, slowly end our conversations and find our seats and turn to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. All right. And before we get started this morning, if you just would pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, God, once again, I'm humbled to be up here teaching, Lord, from your word. God, I pray this morning as we go through this passage and we jump back into the narrative of Exodus, Lord, that you are heard clearly, Lord, that your word is proclaimed, Lord, that your heart is seen, that your greatness, Lord, is seen through, through the word, Lord, through your revealed word, Lord, this treasure that we have. God, as we've been reflecting the last couple of weeks on your name, Lord, I pray that we never forget how amazing it is that you have revealed your name to us, Lord, and not just what your name is, but what it means. Be with us this morning, Lord, as we continue to see your character through the book of Exodus, Lord. I pray that we are encouraged and in awe of your greatness and gentleness and love. As you interact with Moses, Lord, I pray that we can see your hands in our lives, Lord. Be with us this morning in your son's name. Amen. Last week, we covered a lot. Um, We uh, looked at the name of the Lord, Yahweh, and how that name points us to Jesus in a number of different ways. There was a lot of information last week, and I hope you left last Sunday in awe of the consistency of Scripture. The week before that, we looked at an outline of Exodus, the, the book as a whole. And we did that because I believe the book of Exodus as a whole is God revealing what it means that he is Yahweh. It's a revelation of the meaning of the name Yahweh. That means the last two weeks we have spent all of our effort at looking at this name, Yahweh. And they both, the last two sermons, were almost two topical sermons on the name of the Lord, God's name. Today, my goal is to kind of jump back into the story of Exodus. I want to cover a lot of ground this morning. And I know we got out really late last week. My goal is to get out on time this week. So, But we're going to cover all of chapter 3 and most of chapter 4. And my goal is just to kind of walk through passage by passage, trying to get us back into the flow of the narrative of Exodus so we know exactly what is going on in the story of Exodus. So if you would... Look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, and just read along with me as we've covered this passage a number of times. I hope to give us context to where we're going. So verse 1 starts, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Again, Moses has been in uh, the wilderness now for 40 years. He's 80 years old, 40 years in Egypt and 40 years in Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of the Lord. This is Mount Sinai, verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw 
that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the Lord, or I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. God knows their sufferings. God knows the suffering of his people. And he has compassion. Verse 8. They have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. If you're familiar with Scripture in the Old Testament, you've heard this phrase, a land flowing of milk and honey, a number of times. This is the first time it appears out of 20 times referring to the promised land, and it's called a land flowing with milk and honey. It implies a land with an abundance of food and natural resources, foods high in fat, milk, and foods high in sugar, honey. And it's not just bees' honey it's talking about here. It's talking about honey from fruits or plants. In other words, this promised land that is promised to Israelites is a place where one can enjoy life and not merely survive. Again, as we have been seeing in the first two chapters of Exodus, this is another allusion, I believe, to the garden. We've seen many, many allusions to the garden, which points us back to the book of Genesis, but it also points us forward to a future hope. A hope that one day that the people of God will commune again with God in paradise, in a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Israel will be a new humanity, a humanity that once again will have a relationship with God in a new garden, in a new Eden, a promised land. Look at verse 8 again. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians, out of slavery, in other words, and to bring them up out of the land to a land, or to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. That sounds amazing. God has come to free his people, to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey, and Moses was excited until verse 10, come, I will send you. (laughs) Wait, what? going to send who, God? (laughs) Now, before we move on, I just really want to compare verse 10 with verses 7 and 8. And I think this is really important. Look at verse 7 and 8 again. 7 says this, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Verse 8, And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Who's going to deliver Israel? God. I have come down to deliver them. How is God going to deliver Israel? Verse 10. Come, 
I will send you, Moses. And you think about that for a second. God is all-powerful, right? He could have delivered Israel any way he wanted to. He could have just sent an angel. You know, why send Moses? He could have sent an angel to tell Pharaoh what he wanted to be relayed instead of Moses. He could have just wiped out Egypt. In fact, in 2 Kings 19.35, he killed 185,000 Assyrians. They just woke up one day, and they're all dead. There's dead bodies everywhere. He could have had Israel just disappear and reappear in the promised land. I mean, you can get creative with this. He could have had the Israelites turn into birds, fly to the promised land, and then turn back to humans. He could have done anything, but that wasn't his plan. Moses, I am going to send you. Even though God is the one who will save Israel, God often chooses human instruments to accomplish his purposes. And we're going to come back to this in a second. But look at verse 9 again. It says this, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Verse 10, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, Moses wasn't too excited about this. In fact, the next 28 verses, Moses questions and argues with God why God should do something different or send someone else. In the next 28 verses, we're going to see four main arguments, or at least four objections to to God sending Moses to Israel and the Egyptians. The first objection, when we've gone over this, is really the question, who am I? Right, who am I? Look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, this is God, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall, or you shall serve God on this mountain. Look at verse 11 again. But Moses said to God, who am I? Why would you send me? Who am I? Isn't there someone better you can send than me? Why me? I want you to think about this. How would you answer this question? And just put yourself in the... Maybe God sent you to tell Moses, hey Moses, uh, God wants you to go to the Israelites and then to the Egyptians. And Moses says, see, well, who am I? How would you answer this question? I think most people in our self-esteem culture would answer the question something like this, Moses, you can do this. Moses, you're a good guy, man. Right, you got this. Moses, if you set your heart to it, right, if you work hard, you can accomplish anything. Or maybe this one. Moses, you need to have a little bit more faith in yourself. How about this? Moses, you have been prepared for this your whole life. I mean, think about it. Who would be better for this job? No one. 
Moses was well-educated. In fact, he was the most educated Israelite in the world at that time. Best education in the world. Moses grew up the prince of Egypt, meaning he knows the Egyptians well, how they operate. He literally speaks their language. He grew up as an Egyptian. God has been preparing Moses for the last 80 years, and Moses was well-prepared. You would think God would say something like this, Moses, I have been preparing you for this moment. Last 80 years, you're ready. It's not what he says. Look at verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Verse 12, God said, But I will be with you. Think of the question that Moses asks. Who am I? Who's at the focus of that question? Moses. Look how God re- responds or answers his question. Verse 12, he said, But I, I will be with you. Who's at the focus of God's response? God. And just a side note. One of the worst things you can do with someone that's stuck in self-pity is we're going to see Moses is kind of in this uh, self-pity mode as we we go through this passage. One of the worst things you can do with someone that's stuck in self-pity, that's saying, woe is me, is to make it all about them. Right? To point them back to themselves and say, no, you got this. The problem is that they're too focused on themselves to begin with. We need to point them to God. Listen, God has already told Moses, I'm going to deliver Israel. Look at verse 8. I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. And I'm going to do it by sending you. Moses' response is, who am I? God's response is, Moses, this is not about you. I will be with you. You know, as I was going through this passage, it really reminded me of the Great Commission. Just think about that for a second. In fact, in Matthew 28, 16, you don't need to turn there, but it'll be on the screen. We're going to be right back in Exodus. Matthew 28, 16 says this, For the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Right? That's awesome. You think about the, the narrative of the Gospels and and, and the, the disciples and apostles were waiting for Jesus to say something like this. That is awesome. Verse 19, go. Wait, what? <laughs> go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Are you going to send us? I mean, think of this call. Go. Make disciples of all nations. Men throughout the world, in other words, are enslaved to sin. Men in slavery throughout the world, under the power of an evil kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, slaves that need to be freed. The apostles were given a task. Go. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Just think of the fear the disciples must have had when they heard those words. You you want us to leave our homes and go to these pagan nations and make disciples? Or how about this? Jesus, you were making disciples and they crucified you. You want us to do the same thing? 
And Jesus says, again, verse 19, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, you guys are ready for this. It's not what it says, right? You're prepared. Just try hard. Set your heart to it. Guys, have a little bit more faith in yourselves. That phrase, just having faith in yourself. You know who in Scripture had a lot of faith in themselves? The Pharisees. That's not what Jesus says. Look, look what he says. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Listen, you've heard me say a number of times from, from this pulpit that preparation for ministry is extremely important. Why God spent 80 years preparing Moses, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness. It's why Jesus spent three years with the disciples, training them, getting them ready, and then 40 days of intense teaching on the kingdom. And then even then, he says, don't go until the Spirit comes. It's why I believe seminary is so important for pastors to get prepared to know this well. That's why preparing our cross-cultural workers or missionaries is important before we send them. That's why learning and studying as a body is important. In fact, 2 Timothy 2.15 says this, Do your best. That's hard work. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You know what that means? There's a wrong way of handling this. And we need to work hard at handling this well. But listen, if God's not with us, we're going to fail. Ultimately, it's not about your ability, your gifting. It's not about your education or knowledge. It's about God. And our trust in Him, our faith in Him to obey His calling, to use what God has given us to glorify Him about him. It's not about our trust in who we are. It's about our trust in who he is. Moses, I'm going to deliver Israel and I'm going to do it by sending you. Just trust me, Moses. Go. Look again at Exodus 3, verse 12. And he said, I'll be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I, I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now think about that sign. <laughs> this wasn't a sign that would build faith. This actually was a sign that, that required faith. It wasn't a sign that built faith like a miraculous sign or a supernatural sign. It's a sign that required faith. Look, look what it says. When, when you have brought the people out of, out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Moses, trust me. Have faith in me. Which leads to Moses' second objection or second question. Who are you? First question is, who am I? I, I believe the second question that, that he really asked God is, who are you? Look at verse 13. The Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? I believe what Moses is really saying is, who are you, God? 
What does it mean that you are Yahweh? What does your name mean? And one of the reasons I believe this is Yahweh is used 165 times in Genesis. It's been revealed. Right? The name itself has been revealed to those fathers of Israel. What Moses is asking, I believe, is what does it mean that you are Yahweh? What is your character? Can we trust you? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, I've done two sermons on the name of the Lord in this passage in particular. I quickly want to go through why I believe that, that God is saying, I'm about to reveal myself to you, but, but I would encourage you, if you haven't heard both those sermons, to go back. They're foundational to Exodus and our understanding as we go through this series of Exodus. I believe God is saying to Moses, I am Yahweh, and I'm about to show you, Moses, what that means. This passage here is, is pointing forward, really, to the rest of the book of Exodus. Chapters 5 through 40 is God revealing what it means that he is Yahweh. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now look at verse 16. Go. 16. Go. Moses, I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. Go. It's an imperative in Hebrew. Moses, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac, of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the afflictions of Egypt to a land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. I just want you to hear what God says in verse 17. I promise that I will bring you up out of the afflictions of Egypt. Right? God could have just stopped there. In fact, God could have stopped after the first word of, in verse 16, go. Right? Moses, go. You don't need more than that. But he is gracious, and he says, I promise that I will bring you up out of the, the afflictions of Egypt. He could have stopped there. He, said, he could have just said, go, I promise you, it's, it's all going to work out. Now listen to me, go. But I want you to see God's gracious character towards Moses. He tells him exactly what is going to happen. Look at verse 18. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, again, that's Yahweh, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews has met with us and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. Verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Say I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that he will let you go and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor. And any woman who lives 
in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now, there's a couple of observations I want to make in verses 18 through 22, this, this prediction of exactly what's going to happen, God telling Moses. The first observation is this, and I mentioned this, but just, I just want you to notice the graciousness and gentleness of God here. God just told Moses to go. It's imperative. Command. Moses' response was to ask questions. In fact, he starts arguing with God. And it gets worse as the dialogue goes on. But what does God do? Not only does God answer Moses' questions, he tells Moses exactly what is going to happen. You know, not everyone that has been called to go it's such a privilege to know exactly what will happen. In fact, as I was thinking through this as the narrative of Scripture as a whole, the only people at the top of my head that God tells exactly what is going to happen, it's usually not good things. Like Paul. Now go to Jerusalem, and you're going to get arrested, and it could be worse than that. But go. God is telling Moses exactly what's going to happen. There's going to be a couple bumps in the road, but at the end, you're going to be victorious through me. I'm going to be victorious and you'll be a part of it. I mean, think of the call of Abraham, Genesis 1, or 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go, same call, right? Go from your country and your kindred and your family's, or father's house to the land that I will show you. He doesn't even tell him where he's going. He says, just go, I'll show you on the way. But God is so patient with Moses. He's slow to anger. He tells him exactly what will happen. Second observation, God will be worshipped in the way he commands his people to worship him. God will be worshipped in the way he commands his people to worship him. This is an important observation because we live in such an individualistic society. A culture that celebrates autonomy. We think we can just worship God any way we want to, but God will be worshipped in the way he commands his people to worship him. Look at verse 18. Go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. There's specifics here. A three day journey into the wilderness. Sacrifice to the Lord. We're going to see as we continue through the book of Exodus that God is going to be very specific on how he is to be worshipped. Leads to a third observation. God is Lord over his people, not Pharaoh or anyone else. It's sometimes argued, as I've been studying this passage, that God is being a little less than honest here. When you think about it and you read through it, right? in verse 8, God makes it very clear, I, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. That's, that's the Israelites. I'm going to deliver them out of slavery and, and send them to the promised land. That's God's intention, to take Israel out of Egypt then why is he going to ask Pharaoh for just three days to worship God? It sounds like it's a temporary thing. What if Pharaoh actually let them go? Would they come back? It's a bunch of questions, and there's some good answers to these questions, but I just think these questions are missing the point. The point is, God is Lord over his people, not Pharaoh. God is saying, I want my people to worship me in a particular way. They are my people, not yours. I am God, not you. 
And really, that's the point. Who is truly Lord of Israel? And that question is going to be answered as we go through the book of Exodus. And fourth observation is this. Israel is not going to leave Egypt empty-handed. Look at verse 21. And I'll give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And, and when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives, or lives in her house for silver and, and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And that's pretty amazing if you think about it. When Israel leaves, the people of Egypt are just going to give them silver, gold, jewelry, and fine clothing. They're just going to give them their wealth. They, they will, the Israelites will plunder the Egyptians just by asking. Historically, we know that when a king would win a battle, he would often have a victory parade displaying the spoils that he won in victory, displaying the prisoners that were freed from um, captivity, Right, men imprisoned by the enemy, prisoners of war. God is promising complete victory over the Egyptians. And all Moses has to do is go. Go, trust me. God will deliver Israel. Moses, just go. Which leads to a third objection. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered... But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Again, who's in the focus here? Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. They will say, the Lord did not appear to you, and that you refers to Moses. Moses is self focused here. He's focused on his abilities. The way has God already said? I mean, look at verse 18. He just flat out says, they and they, that's the elders, that's Israel, will listen to your voice, Moses. I promise they will listen to you. God has already graciously revealed to Moses that the Israelites will listen. So let me ask you this question. Who is Moses truly doubting? He's doubting God. He's doubting God's word. That sign in verse 12 wasn't good enough for Moses. The sign that says this, this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Right? This is the sign that took faith to believe. It wasn't good enough for Moses. So God patiently and graciously gives Moses three more signs. Three signs that would strengthen his faith. Three miraculous signs. Look at verse 2. This is the first sign. The Lord said to him, What is in your hand? He said, that's Moses, a staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. This sign is a miraculous sign, right? You don't throw staffs on the ground and they become snakes. But in this case, it did. And obviously, it was a venomous snake. Moses ran from it. This is like, 
uh, Egypt area, so I'm picturing the, is it the cobra. <laughs> Look at verse 4. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. That would take faith. I mean, let's get back in California. Say you throw the staff down, God tells you, and it turns into a rattlesnake, and God says, hey, now grab it by the rattle. <laughs> you think about that, this sign took both faith and built faith. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. It took faith. God is gently teaching Moses, trust me. Trust me. I'm all powerful. I will be the one that delivers Israel through you. Something else I want to point out, there's another allusion to the garden here. Remember, Pharaoh is being portrayed as the seed of the serpent, right? Remember Genesis 3.15 when God cursed the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you, that's a serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring, the literal translation is your seed and her seed. In other words, there's going to be war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. In the book of Exodus, Israel is being portrayed as the seed of the woman, and Pharaoh as the seed of the serpent. In fact, the pharaohs in the Egyptian culture were represented by a serpent. I don't know if you knew this. Even had a viper or cobra on their crown. You probably picture it in your head, but if if you can't, just Google search Pharaoh, and you'll see their crown that they're wearing with a snake right on top of it. Pharaoh is the seed, is a seed of the serpent. Now look at verse 3 again. It says, so he, that's Moses, threw it, the staff on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it, just like Moses ran from Pharaoh in chapter 2 to the land of Midian. Now look at verse 4. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Put out your hand. This is one of those times I don't love the ESV's translation. A better translation of verse 4 would be this, but the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand stretch out your hand and catch it by the tail. The reason that would be a better translation here is because that that Hebrew word is the same exact Hebrew word that's used in verse 20. So I, that's God, will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt. This first sign was showing Moses that Pharaoh, the seed of the serpent, and the Egyptians were completely under the control of God's hand. Verse 4. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. Verse 5, that they might believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. That was the first sign. The second sign is, starts in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Again, the Lord said to him, put out, or put your hand inside your cloak. Put his, he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, Behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. The third sign is found in verse 8. If, you will, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign, if they will not believe even those two signs, or these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some of the water 
from the Nile and pour it on the ground, on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now this last sign points, of course, to the first plague, and the first miraculous sign against Egypt, as we will see. We'll talk a lot more about that later. But I just want to point out that all three of these signs, like most biblical miracles, had the purpose of confirming God's word. God will redeem Israel. God's word is trustworthy. Here's three signs to prove it, Moses. This brings us to Moses' fourth objection. We look at verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Again, I hope you're seeing a pattern here. Right, who's at the focus here? O my Lord, I am not eloquent. I am slow of speech and tongue. Moses, again, is self-focused. He's focused on his abilities. I am not eloquent. I am slow of speech and tongue. Now, it's not clear exactly why Moses says this. Most people believe, and I think correctly, that he had some kind of speech impediment. Because of this speech impediment that he's focused on, says, you can't use me, God, as a messenger, because I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Listen to what God says in verse 11, and just as a side note, this is one of the most remarkable verses, I believe, in all of Scripture. Verse 11, then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, deaf, or seen, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, I know this verse brings up a lot of questions, and I'm tempted to dive into, like, the problem of evil. But there's, there's two things I want to point out. The first one is this. God makes, or God doesn't make any excuses or qualifications. He, he doesn't say it's because of the sin of Adam or, or because of man's free will. He just says, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? There's no explanation, no qualification. He is God. He is sovereign over both our abilities and our disabilities. That's the first observation. But the second one is this. This is meant to comfort us. This is meant to comfort Moses. God is saying, Moses, I am sovereign over your mouth. (laughs) Moses, I made you exactly the way I wanted you to be. I'm in control. Trust me. You know, as Christians just like Moses, we get so focused on the things we can't change about us. And we ignore the things that God has called us to do. 
we should trust in God's sovereignty on the things we can't change about us and listen to God and do what he's called us to do. (laughs) You know, someone that struggles in speaking, and you guys have heard me stumble over words, and if you haven't, you will. I promise. I love this passage. God, you've made me exactly the way you want me to be, and I'm going to just try to be as faithful as I can. Don't get me wrong, in my sinfulness, I start focusing on my things I lack. God is calling Moses just to be faithful and trust him. Verse 12. Now therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. It's the same answer he gives to all of Moses' objections, right? Moses, I will be with you. Right? Look, look at what he says. I will be with your mouth. Right? I, I'm the one that, that made your mouth. <laughs> Trust me, I'll be with you. I will tell you what to say. I will, I will teach you what you shall speak. Which leads to a, a final plea by Moses. He's out of excuses, so this is just a plea, verse 13. But he said... Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. I want to remind you of of the name of the Lord. Again, I think Exodus points us, especially chapter 3, points us forward to all of Exodus, God revealing his name, but especially two verses. Exodus 34, verse 7 and 8, and Exodus 34, 7 says this, Yahweh, Yahweh, this is my name, and this is what it means, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Slow to anger doesn't mean God doesn't get angry. (laughs) In fact, God has a righteous anger towards sin and rebellion. God is slow to anger. And you just see it in this passage. There's four objections, or four arguments. Moses is arguing with God, and and a flat-out, I believe, an irreverent plea. I think it's irreverent because he doesn't use the name of God. If you look, it says, oh, Lord, lowercase L-O-R-D. That's when God finally gets angry. But even after this, God is still gracious and patient with Moses. Look at verse 14. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put um, put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. See the grace of God there? He says, all right, Moses, I'll send Aaron. He'll speak for you. You're still going. (laughs) Verse 16, he, that's Aaron, shall speak for you, that's Moses, to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. Now, that's an interesting verse. I think all this is saying here is that that Mo, or, um, Aaron's going to be a, uh, just like a prophet speaks for God, Aaron will speak for Moses. I don't think there's anything further that comes from that. Look at verse 17. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. In other words, Moses, take your staff and go. Go. Finally, Moses is out of excuses and he goes, as we will see next week. 
Now, there's so much in this passage, and a lot that we just briefly went over, but, and if we, we went through this, and every little thing brought it out, I, this would be, Exodus would be the only book I preach on in my career as a pastor, so. But before we go, I really just want to point out two things that really jumped out at me in this passage. Two application points, two things that I think we, we should take home. The first one is this. The who am I and the who are you questions are those two questions that Moses starts with. Right? And I really believe you see, you see these two questions throughout the whole dialogue between Moses and God. The, the who am I and the who are you questions, these questions are probably the two most important questions you could ever ask God. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holies, starts with a famous line, and I'm sure most of us are familiar with this, and it's this. What comes to our minds when we first think of God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our minds when we first think of God is the most important thing about us. More, more important than anything else, Tozer says, it's what comes to our minds when we first think of God. He continues and says this, For this reason, the gravest question that the, before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his heart conceives God to be like. Whatever you in your heart conceive God to be like is going to affect what you say or do. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's going to determine what you say and do. That who are you question is an important question. That's theology, by the way. Theology, theos is God. Ology is the study of, the study of God. That's why studying God's word is so important and, and learning what God has revealed about himself to us. In John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, his first line is this, nearly all the wisdom we possess that is to say, true and sound wisdom consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and ourselves. Therefore, the who am I question and the who are you God question are the two most important questions you could ever ask God. You know, I don't know if you've seen this in popular Christianity, but we often think way too highly of ourselves and way too lowly of God. We sometimes call this man-centered theology, which is oxymoron, by the way. Theology is the study of God. How can it be man-centered? You know, when we think too highly of ourselves, we start interpreting Scripture wrongly. You know, I see this everywhere in Christianity today. The Bible becomes more about me and what I need to do in my circumstances rather than God and what he has done. Think of Moses. He was only focused on his abilities or lack of. He wasn't focused on the promises of God and the ability of God to fulfill those promises. You know, I don't think Moses' problem was that he had, a, had too high a view of self. 
I just don't think he had a high enough view of God. Therefore, he was forced to look at himself. Listen, a high view of God leads to radical faith. And radical faith leads to radical obedience because we trust God. We trust God. So it leads, actually, to our second application point. They're related. And I know I've already said this, but, but I hope you see it. And it's just throughout this whole entire passage, right? The patience and grace of God. I just, I don't know of any passage that I've studied in Scripture that displays the fatherly nature of God better than this one. Moses is acting like a three-year-old. In fact, I've had this conversation with my three-year-old. <laughs> hey, I need you to go do this. Well, I can't. Hey, I'll be right with you. I'm like, I'm right there with you. No, I can't. Well, why not? <laughs> just trust me. God is commanding Moses to go. And he's saying, I'll be there with you, Moses. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it through you. I'll be there right with you. Just go. Just have faith. You know, I, I, I know there's a lot of passages in Scripture that make God scary. Right? We've seen them. We've studied them. And, and there should be a healthy fear of the Lord, a reverence for the God of the universe, the great I am, a just and holy God. In fact, if you haven't put your faith in the Lord, if you haven't trusted in his son that he died on the cross for your sins, then you're not adopted into the family of God and you should be terrified of God. And trust in him. Trust in his son. He died on the cross for your sins. But for everyone that has put their faith in God he's presented as a heavenly father as Ross said in the prayer we've been adopted into his family like I know God is just and holy but God reveals his name also as merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love God reveals himself in scripture as a loving father Again, A.W. Tozer says, what comes to our minds when we first think of God is the most important thing about us. I hope, I hope one of the first things that comes to our minds when we think about God is a loving Father that is completely trustworthy. Therefore, if he tells you to go, you can trust him and go. If he tells you to stay, you want, you want to leave your marriage and, and, and you know that you shouldn't because God says you, you need to work on it. You can say, God, I trust you, even though I don't, I don't see the future. I don't know how this is going to work out, but I trust you. I'm going, to, I'm going to do what you have called me to do. Because I trust you. Having a high view of God leads to radical faith in God because he is trustworthy, which will produce radical obedience God so fatherly to Moses in fact this week I was just convicted that I am so impatient with my children after reading this passage I need to be way more slow to anger like God is 
I hope you have that view of God. I hope that balances out the view of his reverence, fear of the Lord. God is with you through obedience. And we need to obey out of faith in him, not out of faith in ourselves. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, God, you are so gracious to us. Lord, God, I just pray again for anyone that does not know you, Lord, that they run to you knowing that your son is their only hope, that they trust in him, Lord, knowing that you are offering grace to them to be adopted into your family, Lord. For everyone else, Lord, for, for those that have put their trust in your son, Lord, that know they are part of your family. Lord, I pray that that this passage reminds us of your goodness. That we can trust you, Lord, with anything that's going on in our life, any circumstance, Lord, that we can obey, not out of legalism or out of faith in ourselves, but obedience through faith in you. That whatever you ask us to do, Lord, it is for your glory and our good. Help us to have that faith in your son's name. Amen.